You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 40. A big thanks goes out to Andrew, James, Michael, and Jeff this week for their donations to the show. I would also like to remind everyone that the best way to help out the show is to leave a review on iTunes or to share the show on social networks. This helps us reach more people and grow the audience. This week, we take a trip out to the Eastern Front in 1915, because during the summer of that year, there was a lot of action taking place between the forces of Germany, Russia, and Austria-Hungary. Over the next four episodes, we will discuss all of the action taking place between May and August 1915. While France and Britain were struggling to launch attacks in the west and on the beaches of Gallipoli, Germany and Austria-Hungary would launch some massive offensives in the east, and these successive hammer blows would leave the Russians reeling. Today we will spend most of our time focusing on the situation in the east in May 1915, before the attacks began, and then taking a look at what the Germans and Austrians planned to do. This episode ties in timeline-wise roughly with episode 37 from the Western Front. First, Let's do a bit of a review on what the situation was in the East in mid-1915. One of the big narratives of this year has been about how the Germans were avoiding large offensives in the West. I started the year discussing it, and nearly every action in the West has in some way tied into that fact. The battles in the East during the summer were the payoff of this focus for the Germans. These were the German offensives of 1915, and as such, all of its offensive efforts were being focused on the attacks. There were many reasons that the attacks were launched when and where they were. 
The first reason is best explained by Crown Prince Wilhelm, the Kaiser's heir, in some of his correspondence with Falkenhayn. He said that if the Germans were ever going to get around to Western offensives, they had to do something about Russia. It was just a fact. He went on to say that actually defeating Russia would be extremely difficult, bordering on completely unrealistic due to Russia's huge manpower reserves and the huge distances involved on the Eastern Front. To get around this fact, he said that the goal should be to try and damage them so badly that they would no longer be a threat, even if they remained technically unbeaten. This type of goal is pretty wise when you look at the history of armies attacking into Russia. Charles XII of Sweden and Napoleon topped the list in 1914 of people who had invaded Russia only to find out that trying to conquer it was extremely unwieldy, especially with the weather. In both cases, they found out that the distances and manpower reserves of Russia were just too vast to try and conquer. Of course, in the next world war, the vicious fighting in the east would once again prove the difficulty, even with massively improved mobility and technology. So the Germans realized that they probably couldn't knock Russia completely out of the war. So the goal was instead to just inflict as much damage as possible with the lowest cost. Hopefully they could be injured enough that they could no longer launch any form of attacks along the front. The biggest benefactor of these German plans wasn't actually Germany, as weird as that sounds, but instead Austria-Hungary. Falkenhayn was never a huge fan of helping out the Austrians, believing that they should be able to take care of themselves. After all, Germany was fighting the combined forces of France, Britain, and most of Russia. All Austria-Hungary had to deal with was Russia and that tiny Balkan country. How hard could it be? However, even if Falkenhayn didn't want to help them, one big change in 1915 made it almost a necessity. That change was the possible entry of Italy into the war, which would make the Austro-Hungarian military position almost impossible to maintain. The Austro-Hungarian army in 1915 wasn't any bigger than the one that had started the war with, with the constant series of defeats, or at best Pyrrhic victories in the Carpathians, having sapped all of its strength. Coupled the numerical concerns with the fact that it was becoming more difficult to depend on some of the minority groups in the ranks, with Czech and Ruthene troops especially unreliable on the Russian front, as they often found far more in common with their Slavic enemies than with their Austrian and Hungarian commanders. Both of these facts combined to make them pretty much desperate for German help, and Comrade, the Austrian military commander, wanted Falkenhayn to send a bunch of German troops that would come in and slap Italy and Russia around for a bit to get them to back down. Falkenhayn, of course, didn't like this plan. He wanted to use German troops for German goals and objectives on the German pieces of the front. Falkenhayn even went so far as to say that Austria should just concede the ground that Italy wanted just to keep the Italians out of the war. This type of concession would have worked wonders to persuade Italy to stay out of the war, and there's a reasonable chance that it would have been made, Italy would have stayed out of the war completely. But it was almost completely impossible for Austria-Hungary to really make those concessions. So what Conrad did was he played his final trump card, when he told Falkenhayn that he would rather make a separate peace with Russia than give up ground to the Italians. This was of course a very big step, and it would have put Germany in a bigger pickle than it was already in. So much like the trump card that takes the trick, Falkenhayn was pretty much forced to start planning under the assumption that troops would be sent to help the Austrians sooner rather than later. 
This also meant that the Austrians would not be trying in any way to keep Italy pacified, and that Italy would enter the war in May 1915. We will talk about what happens on the Italian front in around episode 44-ish, so in about a month. One of the reasons that Conrad was so adamant about getting help from the Germans was that he knew that he had an advantage in the summer of 1915, and that advantage was gained by the material problems that the Russians were having all along the front. Back in episode 34, we touched upon some of the economic difficulties that the Russians were having, but just to summarize, the Russians had a lot of men. That was never a problem, but keeping them supplied was. The Russians were producing just 50,000 new rifles per month, when they needed almost 200,000 just to cover attrition-based replacement needs, let alone actually growing the number of troops in the field. They also produced 2 million shells during the first four months of 1915, at a time when the Germans were producing millions of shells every single month. I didn't talk about this too much in episode 34, but one of the problems the Russians were having was the fact that they were heavily reliant on horse transport to get material to the front. This wasn't a voluntary move, not at all. They just didn't have the same amount of railroads as other countries, and those railroads weren't as efficient or as well-maintained as their German counterparts. This put them in a transport crisis, where the only real option was to rely on horses and wagons to take the huge amount of supplies the last miles from the railheads to the front line. These horses, of course, also needed supplies, so those would have to be brought up as well. While the inability to move supplies up to the front had some obvious results, there were some maybe less obvious side effects of this inability of the Russians to quickly transport things around the front. Since they couldn't move troops around like their German enemies, they had to rely on a big, thick, heavy line to stop in advance because they couldn't bring up reinforcements quickly enough to contain breakthroughs. The reliance on a heavy, strongly defended front line meant that they were, in general, more exposed to German artillery fire, and if the Germans did manage to break through, they would be able to achieve that line-rendering advance that the Allies were trying so hard to make happen on the Western Front. With these facts and how Austria-Hungary was acting, Falkenhayn began to accept the fact that the German assistance was going to have to happen, and knowing the same things about the Russian situation, he decided that if there was going to be German help, he was going to go all in. Falkenhayn met with Conrad to discuss his options on where the attack should happen, and the Austrian general said that he believed that the Russian line between the Galatian towns of Gorlitz and Tarnow could be broken through if he was given a force of about four German divisions. Attacking in this area would take pressure off of the Austrians, and also, if it was really successful, put the Russian positions in central Poland at risk. Falkenhayn examined the options and agreed with Conrad's assessment. On April 13th, he discussed his plans with the Kaiser, who gave the go-ahead for the offensive. On their way east were eight German divisions, not just the four requested by Conrad and they would be commanded by a General Mackinson, who was soon to become one of the most successful generals of the war. This is the first time that we have met General Anton Ludwig August von Mackinson. Side note here, uh, how awesome does that name sound? That is like four good, solid, strong names just for one person. Anton Ludwig August von Mackinson was born in 1849, which made him 65 in 1914. 
He had started his military career as a volunteer during the Franco-Prussian War and worked his way up the ranks from there. During the Franco-Prussian War and afterwards, he served in the cavalry and was at one point in time considered maybe the best horseman in all of Germany. Through connections, he would find himself as the personal military history tutor to a young Kaiser Wilhelm II, which of course was great for his future military prospects. He began serving on the Gen German general staff in 1891 and would serve on it for many years, and he would become a close associate of Schlieffen and would even be considered as a possible successor to Schlieffen on his death. That spot, of course, went to Moltke, and Mackensen would begin his war when he took command of units in the east, where he would lead with distinction at the battles of Gombinen and Tannenberg. If you remember way back in episode 10, we discussed these battles that were the first major actions in the East, and they occurred in East Prussia, not long after the war began. With these actions under his belt, he would be put in command of the Ninth Army when its then-current commander Hindenburg was promoted to the commander of the entire Eastern Front. He would command this army for the first few months of 1915, but once it became clear to Falkenhayn that he would be taking offensive action in conjunction with Austria-Hungary, he gave the command to Mackensen. Some sources claim that part of the reason for Mackensen's getting the job was because he wasn't closely connected with Hindenburg and Ludendorff. If you remember the tension between Falkenhayn and the dynamic duo, the reason that this consideration is important becomes apparent. The army that Mackensen was put in command of was the 11th Army, and he would technically be taking orders from the Austro-Hungarian leadership, but there was a caveat that he would only comply with orders from the Austrians after, quote, due consultation, end quote, with the German high command. What this meant was that while he was taking orders from Conrad, it was only the orders that Falkenhayn liked and for the most part, Mackensen would have a good amount of operational freedom once the action got going. Personal opinion time here, although some historians agree with me. I think that Mackensen was one of the better commanders of the war. You pretty much can't argue with his results in the East, and he wasn't some military genius that was going to somehow solve the Western Front problem, but he was very good at accomplishing his goals when they were possible. This comes later in the war, but is probably worth mentioning during his introduction. But one of the things he is most remembered for was his treatment of Serbian soldiers and civilians during the invasion of Serbia that he will command here in a little while. He would lead the troops that would eventually cause the small country to fall, but he would keep it from becoming a raping and pillaging expedition. He is one of the very few, maybe the only one, of the enemy commanders during the war that is remembered favorably by Serbia, which probably says everything that anybody needs to know about his character. Hey everyone, I'm a busy person. Kids, job, a podcast you may have heard of, and because I'm so busy sometimes I just do not want to cook. And that's why I'm here to talk to you about Factor. They are America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. I can tell you about how awesome the creamy pesto pork chop is, or how delicious the turkey chili and zucchini was, but everything I've tried from Factor tastes great. I think the part that surprised me the most is that after I ate them, I felt satisfied. I don't know of too many things that are ready in two minutes that leave me feeling great like Factor does. Factor has 34-plus delicious menu options that make my life easier and honestly healthier, and really, I need both of those things. 
So head over to factormeals.com slash GW50 and use code GW50 to get 50% off. That's code GW50 at factormeals.com slash GW50 to get 50% off. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Let's now move on to talk about what the plan was for these troops that were moving into the East. In his book, The Real War, Liddell Hart would have this to say about the situation. Quote, Tactically unlimited, a strategic object was at first only the limited one of relieving the pressure on the Austrian front and concurrently of reducing Russia's offensive power, end quote. The attack would be launched along similar lines to the Lamanau-Lapanau attack that we had covered near the beginning of the year, with an attack to the south of the Polish town of Krakow, between the river Vistula and the Carpathian Mountains. Unlike earlier attacks, these summer attacks would not involve any action in the mountains, which is sort of funny if you think about it. The Austrians had been so determined to attack through the mountains in the dead of winter when they were at their most inhospitable, and when the summer rolled around and an attack at those elevations may have actually been possible, they decided not to attack in that region. The consequence of this was that the attack would be launched on a much narrower front than the previous attacks, and it had the general aim of reaching the River San. This river was considered a stretch goal, though, and it wasn't thought to be mandatory for the attack to be deemed a success. If it was reached, that'd be great. If not, it was okay, because you could still accomplish the goal of relieving the pressure on the Austrians. The attack was always planned as the first in a series throughout the summer, so as long as it gave the Austrians greater ability to prepare for the next attack, that was all that was really required. At his disposal, Mackensen had the 11th German and 4th Austro-Hungarian armies, which meant he had 14 divisions that would be facing just 6 Russian divisions at the point of attack. The German troops were some of the best formations available during the summer of 1915, with the 1st and 2nd Guards divisions and the 19th and 20th Infantry divisions being the core of the German army. The total number of troops was around 120,000, and of course they had their typical sizable amount of artillery accompanying them. There is a lot of variation in what I am seeing for artillery gun numbers during the battle, which is somewhat typical for Eastern Front affairs. Some sources claim a bit over 500, and others claim over 2,000 guns on the German side. Obviously those numbers are very different, and are far more divergent than is typical, which is why I wanted to point it out. So it's time now for another somewhat random aside. 
So anytime you read history books, you should always be looking out for the biases of the author. Sometimes these biases are such that they sway the history in one way or another, maybe painting one side in a different light than other sources. It is one of the interesting things about studying history, there is rarely a black and white answer. During all of my time with the sources for this show, I've got a pretty good catalog going of some of the author's biases and how to account for them. However, sometimes you run up against a bias that doesn't really change the entire narrative, but instead just puts one particular piece of the story in much sharper focus. So that brings me to The Eastern Front, 1914-1917, by Norman Stone. The book is great, and I highly recommend it to anybody. But Stone must have had some sort of weird affection for the Meinenwürfer, because he mentions it, and he mentions it very often. The Meinenwürfer literally means mine thrower in German, and this is the first time that we've really come up against it in our episodes. It was one of those early innovations of the war that was just absolutely perfect for trench warfare. A Meinenwürfer was a small siege mortar that could be used in the trenches as sort of a short-range artillery piece. They had very short range, but given the low distance that the shells had to travel, they could be extremely accurate. It is one of those signature weapons that the Germans had during the war, and there would be tens of thousands of them in the trenches of all fronts used by all sides by the end of the war. I can only assume that Stone believes that they had played a huge role in the course of the war, so he wants to bring them into spotlight, or maybe he just liked writing the name. But it is one of those interesting things that he basically mentions Meinenwürfers at times when nobody else does, like giving exact numbers for every battle on the Eastern Front when most sources wouldn't even bother. So basically, the Germans had some number of artillery guns between 500 and 2000, and some number of Meinenwürfer, exactly 96 according to Stone. And facing them, the Russians had maybe a couple hundred of artillery guns, so I guess you can probably see how imbalanced this is going to be. The Germans also had a million shells ready to be dropped on the Russian lines, which of course the Russians couldn't even come remotely close to matching. Now the German advantage wasn't just in the form of material though. They had also brought with them a whole host of lessons that they had learned while both attacking and defending in the West. These included changes to artillery tactics, with increased emphasis on careful registration of guns on specific targets before the attacks. The German commanders also more heavily practiced coordination between the infantry and the artillery, so that their combined power would have maximum effect on the enemy. These and other lessons would be critical to making the upcoming attacks a success. Facing the incoming German attack was the Russian Third Army, which defended the line between Krakow and the Carpathians. As the attack drew closer, this army found itself in the same position as all Russian armies at the edge of the fronts, isolated and without support. When I say front in this case, I mean the end of one of the two Russian zones of control that they had split their line into right from the beginning of the war. In this case, the third army was the northernmost army of the southern front. This arrangement always caused problems for the armies on the far ends of the lines, and it didn't help that the commander of the southern front, General Ivanov, was during the summer of 1915 building up men and material for renewed attacks in the Carpathians. This meant that the third army was being asked to take over more of the line so that the armies further south could consolidate their men, while also being asked to give up men to be used in the attacks in the south. 
The results of these changes were that the Third Army would, would have very few reserves in place when the attacks would come, since they had been forced to give them up and move them to the south. I believe that this problem was only mostly caused by the division of the front between the two commanders, with Ivanov in the south and Alexeyev in the north. It is likely that if there had been under one command, or if Grand Duke Nicholas, the highest commander in the Russian army, had been stronger in his control, the troops would have been moved down from Prussia or northern Poland to assist the Third Army. At this point, there were more divisions in the north at 57 than there were in the south at 41, even though the northern front was not planning any kind of attack. So the th southern front was having to scrape every man it could from the front to collect enough strength to launch attacks, which weakened critical sections of the front, all due to the conflict between Ivanov and Alexeyev, and the lack of a strong authority figure. Unfortunately for the Russians, the section of troops that was most affected by these shortages were the troops furthest to the west on the Third Army's front, where two corps held the line just south of Krakow, near the Polish town of Gorlich. Yes, that is the same Gorlich that is the focus of the upcoming German attacks. As far as I know, there's only one Gorlich in Poland. The only bright spot for the Russians was that the Third Army hadn't been in action for a while, and this meant that it was at least well-rested and was better supplied than was typical for Russian armies on the Eastern Front. Norman Stone would cite a French observer who claimed that this supply situation was actually a negative. He claimed that it was an example of mismanagement of shells, since the Third Army's front was inactive, and it was just sitting on the shells, while the other parts of the line, troops in action, were struggling to get anything for the guns to shoot. I guess there is some logic in this opinion, but only if you are under the assumption that the Germans are never going to attack, and there's no chance that they would ever attack quiet parts of the line. Even though the Third Army was rested and slightly better supplied, it still had some serious problems. First of all, the trenches in the area were very underdeveloped, to the point of being laughable. For whole stretches of the front, it looked more like a long, barely connected series of ditches than a serious military defensive position. The barbed wire wall present was very sparse, especially by Western Front standards, and it would have been easily dispatched by German shelling. Then there was the fact that communication wires to the rear were often not even buried, just laying on the ground as they ran from the front to the rear. These would be easily cut by shelling when the time came. All of these facts point to a complete lack of emphasis by the Russian commanders when it came to always being prepared for an attack to happen, since it was the commander's responsibility to make sure that the men under his command were doing what was necessary to prepare for a defense. Unfortunately, even when some of the units tried to improve their section of the line, they were told improvements were unnecessary. Norman Stone would say this about a situation where one Russian army corps asked for permission to build a reserve trench line on their sector of the front. Quote, 10th Corps had wanted to build one, but it was told that if it could spare the labor for this, it must have more troops than it needed to hold the front line. One regiment was therefore removed from each division for the Carpathian Offensive. End quote. So that's some good solid negative reinforcement there. So in situations like the ones present, it isn't crazy to think that the Russian commanders weren't actually trying to improve or strengthen their line of defense at all, because they were being punished for it. As the attack drew closer, Mackinson would move his men into the line over the course of 10 days, not only moving at night to try and conceal the buildup from the Russians as long as possible. 
While the Russians were improving their lines, the Germans and Austrians were slowly pushing their lines out into the wide no-man's land to make jumping-off points closer to the Russian lines. In this section of the front, the lines were at times thousands of feet apart, so moving new lines closer to the Russians was imperative to a successful attack. With preparations like that, it is impossible to keep the preparations from the Russians forever, and by the end of April, the Russians were beginning to suspect that there would be some form of action, with the primary indicator being the presence of German troops in an area previously occupied by Austro-Hungarian forces. On April 29th, it was confirmed by the Russian that three German corps were on their front and preparing to attack while on the 30th, an Austrian deserter revealed the plans for the whole of the offensive that was planned to take place just two days later. The 3rd Army's commander, General Radko Dmitriev, who we will be discussing quite a bit next week, seems to have dismissed most of these reports and did not believe that there were anything to worry about. Mackensen would issue his orders for the attack, and in them he would stress the importance of a quick breakthrough with the following words. Quote, the attack of the 11th Army must, if its mission is to be fulfilled, be pushed forward fast. Only through rapidity will the danger of the enemy renewing his resistance in the rearward positions be averted. Two methods are essential, deep penetration by the infantry and a rapid follow-up by the artillery. The date of the attack was set for May 2nd, and as the hour drew closer, it became clear that the weather on the day of the attack would be perfect. Four hours before the attack, the guns began to fire. And that's where we will end it this week. Next week, we will dig into the attacks by Mackinson's men before looking at their results, and the next set of attacks launched in the exact same spot. It should be a very action-packed episode. Goodbye, Picardy.